welcome to Run Out Radio. I'm Jerry Forsythe, along with Mike Howard. And this week, we're joined by the managing editor of Billiards Digest, Mason King. Mason, how are you today? Great, guys. How are you doing? Hey, we're hanging in there. Yeah, that's good. Um, you know, I'm still tired from the U.S. Open. <laughs> yeah, still getting over that one myself. And that's uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is the U.S. Open. Mike, I believe you're the one with the schedule of uh, what we're going to be talking about here. Before we get started on the U.S. Open, uh, Mason, I think you guys have a new issue out, don't you? Yeah, we do. November came out. Uh, the November issue came out a couple weeks ago. And what do you guys? What's your main? Well, that's story? our annual uh, Best New Rooms and Architecture Design Awards. We've been doing this for 19 years, and this is uh, always our best-selling issue. Um, so we have a new crop of 10 new pool rooms. Uh, and then uh, our crack staff of <laughs> architecture experts uh, have, have gone through uh, the nominees this year, and we've uh, discovered the best new rooms and uh, and why uh, they are the best new rooms. Just uh, I'm sure everybody's curious. We uh, judged the number one room this year to be a room in Victoria. Uh, Peacock Billiards Limited and the James Joyce Bistro in Victoria. British Columbia, Canada. Congratulations to David Peacock and those guys. Beautiful room. Probably the thing that really distinguished it this year. Uh, there's about ten, like U-Haul sized original murals in this room, uh, done by local artists in uh, British Columbia, and uh, it really added, I think, kind of a unique element to the room. And uh, as well, there, each table in the room, and there are about thirty tables, is completely unique. Instead of using all the same tables, what they have done is use entirely different tables, uh, and sort of corned off different parts of the room with colors and different themes. Uh, something that we haven't seen in the nineteen years that we've done this, and uh, it seemed to work. It sounds kind of schizophrenic, but it seemed to work. So, uh, congratulations, to those guys. And you've got pictures in the new issue. Oh, we got pictures. Oh, yeah. One of the great things about this uh, about this issue is that uh, it is just chock full of pictures of uh, pool rooms. And uh, for pool owners out there, it gives you some great ideas for uh, what to do with your room if you want to change things up a little bit. And uh, I don't know, just something kind of comforting about just looking at pool rooms. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to seeing the, uh, the photos from the rooms. Uh, what are you guys working on for next month? That would be the U.S. Open. Of course. Uh, that's the December issue. Yeah, that's, you know, obviously a huge issue as well. Uh, we have our annual gift guide in this year, and we've got a special skit planned, as we usually do, uh, kind of a special photo spread. Uh, this year, uh, it's kind of fun. We uh, went around and talked to a lot of the players and got them to give us pictures of themselves as kids uh, during Christmas. So we've got pictures of, you know, Jeanette Lee in her pajamas opening up presents on Christmas morning and, and Ava Lawrence back in Sweden. Uh, dressed up as a little choir girl, you know, at Christmas. And so that's kind of the theme this year. It's sort of, you know, holidays past and present, plus, you know, 60 great gift ideas for the holidays. But, yeah, definitely the big news story is the U.S. Open. Well, it sounds like fun. Uh, speaking of the U.S. Open, I know we were all there. Uh, Shane Van Boning with, with the big win. One of the things that I wanted to, to talk about is, as we all saw, you guys broke the story just the other day that uh, – that Shane was picked for the Moscone Cup team. Uh, Jerry and I have talked recently about how we kind of feel that the U.S. is fielding a stronger team at the Moscone Cup than the Europeans. How do you think this affects the Moscone Cup teams? Well, I don't think it was a giant surprise, really, that Shane was picked for the team. Uh, I know that really they were talking about him 
uh, way before the U.S. Open. And he had, he had that second-place finish at the, the Enjoyed Pool Championships and then the first-place finish at the 10-ball, uh, and a good finish also at the World Summit. So it wasn't a huge surprise. So I think for the U.S. team right now, four of the five guys are, surprise, Johnny Archer, uh, Earl Strickland, Rodney Morris, and now Shane. Um, pretty strong. I mean, we'll see who that fifth member is. Um, I don't know if you guys have any feelings about who you think that fifth member is going to be. Uh, I think Mike Davis is playing pretty well. Well, I had actually read somewhere recently that Corey was the front runner for that fifth person. Yeah, and obviously, yeah. I mean, Corey's got plenty of experience in the Moscone Cup. I think uh, won that final match last year uh, that led to the uh, kind of anticlimactic tie, right. uh, which turned into the U.S. win. Uh, so I think that, that's a typically strong team, though we know that uh, Johnny isn't uh, playing as much as he used to. Uh, Earl went with like 1-1 and then lost two at the U.S. Open. Uh, Rodney certainly is not playing as well as he used to because he also, um, like Johnny, is spending a lot of time you know, working on his you know, financial uh, standing, which I guess, you know, by that I mean working on different businesses outside of pool. So I think these guys, um, I think their attention really is elsewhere right now. I think, you know, Shane becomes, I think, by far the strongest member of that team. Oh, by far. I agree that Shane's the, Shane's the strongest member of the team, but I think when you look at the two teams as they're constructed right now, America still has the stronger team. Those guys, those American guys, they come together as a team at the Moscone Cup. Uh, last year, they kind of stumbled around a bit, but um, this year, I think they're going to dominate. I really do. I, I see them winning by as much as, as five points. Well, I think the, uh, the European team right now is Niels Fan, uh, Ralph Suquet, Tony Drago from Malta, and Konstantin Stepanov. You guys remind me, where is he from? Russia. He's Russia. Russia. Right. Uh, and then there'll be a fifth uh, member announced after the World Pool Championships. I don't know. Honestly, I see that right now as being pretty equal. I think Niels is playing as well as anybody right now. Uh, Ralph uh, showed some signs of the old form by finishing in the top four at the U.S. Open. Uh, Drago stepping off on more, you know, question marks, but I don't know. I, you know, just by virtue of, of the numbers, I think Team Europe can't keep losing. Um, I, I think, you know, it'll be close. I think they'll surprise us. That's like saying if you flip a coin ten times and it's always heads, that the next time the odds are greater that it's going to be tails. It's not. It's always 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, on one side of this coin, I've got uh, Neil Spain and Ralph Suquet, so it can't be all bad. That's true. That's true. I would like to see a very close Moscone Cup. Mm -hmm. I would also like to see America win again, but that's just my <laughs> personal prejudice. One of, the, uh, one of the topics that came about at the U.S. Open was the, the scheduling nightmare and the late matches uh, late in the tournament. I, I don't know what your opinion was on this, Mason, but... I feel strongly about the U.S. Open. I feel that it is and should always remain the most prestigious title on American soil. I just feel strongly about that. And it, it seemed with the scheduling the way it worked that it, it was more like Derby City where it was an endurance contest, particularly for a player like Louis Ulrich. He, uh, you know, if you watch that match that he lost uh, for fifth, sixth, he... He looked like he was just having a hard time standing up and walking around the table. Uh, what was your uh, what was your view on that? Yeah, at, at a certain point, it just became ridiculous when you know you're you've got a couple of guys you know that are 
is getting laid on Friday night, and suddenly there's a lot of money at stake. At least for pool players, there's a lot of money at stake. And you know, matches are finishing up at 4:30 in the morning. Um, you know, and I think we'll see that change next year. Um, but I, I don't have as much sympathy for you know the endurance test argument. You know, if, if we want pool to be considered a sport, you know, I think you have to have a level of endurance, both mental and, and physical. Um, I mean, that, that argument doesn't hold a lot of water to me. I think you ought to be able to play, you know, 12 hours a day. And I think that's kind of what the IPT was trying to do. Uh, one of the few things I think the IPT was trying to do that I kind of agreed with. Um, and what you found usually with the end of those IPT events is that the guys who were in the best condition, both mentally and physically, uh, were winning. And that's, I think, you know, if you're trying to get pool into the Olympics, you know, trying to get the pool recognized as a sport, that you ought to be able to hold up under those kind of conditions. You know, it's like uh, being in the Olympics and saying, being in the Olympics and saying, you know, well, I'm, yeah, I'm a swimmer, and I'm, uh, I'm got to swim my, uh, I don't know, my my 400 yard medley, and then turn right around and swim uh, my individual 200. Boy, I'm kind of tired after that last medley. I feel kind of crappy. That's really not fair. Yeah, but I'm going to really disagree with you. 12 hours is one thing, but 16, 18 hours is absurd. And um, pool is a, a, a mental game. And a, to keep your mental sharpness uh, over that long a period of time is, I think, more than you can ask for. And to compare it to the Olympics, I'm going to take you to tack there, too. I don't think pool belongs in the Olympics. Um, these are not Olympic athletes that we see out there playing. Agreed, we have some who are, like Suke, like Eminem, uh guys who really do uh, who, who really do act as athletes. Uh, but uh, you don't have to go far to find champions who are not. And um, you know, frankly, I love the Olympics. I love pool. I hope pool never shows up in the Olympics. I would like to see. The schedule at the U.S. Open change next year so that the players' meeting is on Saturday night and that you get a full day of play on Sunday instead of just two rounds. Uh, because asking guys to come back and play after three or four hours of sleep is just not what I want to see in a pool tournament. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. I mean, we have a situation where, you know, Ralph C.K. finishes up a match at 4.30 in the morning and then has to come back early, I think, and play. He had, a, I think, a 1 o'clock match. Uh, yeah, that's where a, a guy gets kind of screwed. But I think, you know, in terms of, you know, playing 12 hours at a time, uh, I don't have a problem with that. Because, you know, I'm not one of these guys. I have trouble watching two matches in a row. So, <laughs> you know, I'm really one to talk. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, endurance should be a part of the sport. Mason, I understand there was some kind of a um, a problem with the seedings when the tournament got started. They were... They were trying to seed based on the UPA rankings. They were trying to seed based on their memory of the WPA rankings. What's it going to take for this sport to end up with one overall ranking system? Uh, wow. I mean, Jerry might be a better guy to talk about that since you guys were there, I think, during that portion of it. Well, Alex Pagulayan, for one, never got seeded. Former U.S. Open champion, former um, world champion, and uh, he just wasn't on the seating list. So what we definitely have to have is an international seating list for events that are international in scope, and the U.S. Open is certainly international in scope. We don't really have that now. I mean, you can say the WPA 
rankings are, are international in scope, but there are a lot of events that aren't WPA sanctioned and therefore don't don't carry points uh, into the WPA ranking list. What would I like to see? Frankly, I'd like to see something like the Billiards Digest Power Index used because it takes into event into account events according to their size and their participation, not according to who sanctions them. It, it's it's a ranking list that goes on the importance of the event and not the politics of the event. And I think that's what the players are owed. Mm. I guess I'd agree to you to an extent. One of the, the problems with using the power index uh, is that it doesn't take into account, or that when you, for example, let's say that you include like the Reno Open uh, in, in your power index, uh, which is which is a great event and draws a lot of players, but it doesn't draw a lot of the top players. And so the way that the Power Index currently is configured, the winner of that event you know, gets X amount of points. The people who don't show up don't get any points. Um, so it's really not a fair contest unless you're really doing an apples to apples uh, comparison. Uh, you're only calling you're only calling from events where a lot of the top players are playing. Uh, and then we've actually kind of changed the way that we do the index in the last couple of years just to make sure they're really only using events in the index where a majority of the top players are playing. Um, you know, unfortunately, there really isn't a perfect way to do this because uh, unlike like the golf tours, like the tennis tours, you don't have all the players playing all the time. Well, ideally, and I know this would be a tremendous amount of work to lay on, on, on Billiards Digest, but someone should be able to pick this up. You need to be able to rank players who are playing on the Guinness Tour and on the San Miguel Tour and on the European Tour and on um, the Canadian Tour and whatever uh, excuse we have for a tour in the United States and somehow do a mind meld of these tours. Now, I don't have a formula for being able to do that unless you just take the individual rankings from each of those tours and an event that has um, X number of seated players, take X number of, of players from each ranking sheet and use them as your seats. I, and that's not really fair either because some of those tours are tougher than others. So, uh, yeah. gee, I'm not coming up with an answer for this. Yeah, that's yeah, tough. Well, I'm glad that's a problem you guys have to deal with and not us. <laughs> we talked recently, or we talked just a couple moments ago about the prize fund and how when you were getting to the end, we were talking about some pretty serious money. I found it interesting. The The prize distribution at this event was 50000 for first place, and it was down to 5000 for fourth place. There's not a whole lot of events out there that have that kind of a differentiation. 10% for fourth place, uh, isn't that out of the ordinary? Uh, yeah, it is. And it's, it's not out of the ordinary for first prize to be um, extravagant. And that's simply a promotion gimmick. Hey, come to this tournament because the winner, you can see the winner walk away with 50000 And uh, the second place guy is only going to walk away with half that amount. Well, in actuality... Uh, many times that's not what they walk away with because the players will work a saver and uh, they'll divvy up the money 
in a lot more equitable manner between themselves than the promoters do. Um, <laughs> but you can't leave it to the players to write this ship. Um, promoters say they always hate the idea of hearing about savers. Well, they can prevent savers uh, by putting less distance between the uh, the prize amounts. And it may not look as good on the banner uh, that first place only pays 30000 instead of 50000 uh, but it's a lot more equitable to the players who came to participate in that tournament. You know, personally, I don't mind if, if Joe's Bar and Grill wants to wants to do their prize money that way for their Friday night tournament, and they right. want to be able to brag that they gave 200 to the winner, but this is the U.S. Open. Barry doesn't need gimmicks. The event speaks for itself, or at least it should be allowed to, and I don't think that he has to resort to tactics like that in order to to draw interest to the tournament. I agree, and I think it's sad that people who come in in uh, eighth place um, or ninth place or wherever, uh, if they've traveled from around the world, as many of his players did, they can't cover their travel expenses. Um, and that would be, a lot of that would be alleviated by lowering that top, uh, number one prize money and spreading it a little bit uh, more evenly uh, throughout the top uh, 16 or 24 players. How many uh, yeah. places did the uh, U.S. Open? 96. Pay? Oh, that's right. It paid to 96, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, the, the bottom rung just got their entry fee back. Yeah, right. Okay, what do you think about uh, lopping, off, lopping off those last 32? I would be I would be perfectly fine with that. So you only play the sixty four, and then you pick up what is that? At least eighteen thousand dollars or so uh, to distribute it to uh, the guys who finished higher. Well, and I right. also feel strongly that getting back your entry fee, what's the point? Uh, I mean, I think if players come out and play in an event, they want to be able to at least walk away with more than they paid to get to enter the tournament. It's like mm-hmm. a, it's like you win the booby prize or something. Yeah, I, I, I personally, having absolutely no stake in this, think that that's a good idea. I wonder if, if Barry wouldn't be afraid that if he didn't pay, uh, you know, basically your interview back for those spaces, he'd have a hard time fielding, you know, more than 200 players. That could be. Um, well, you can't really talk about the U.S. Open without talking about the play of Shane Van Boning. And you guys had a chance to watch the finals. I was busy working. Um Guys, just how good is Shane Van Boning, and, and is he the player? Billiards Digest has written articles about this recently, that the U.S. players are falling behind the the Europeans and the rest of the world. Is is Shane the player that can push the level of play in the U.S. back to the to the level above some of these other? And, and I realize that's an awful lot to put on one kid's shoulders, but. But, I mean, just how good is this kid? Well, I'll answer your second question first. And the answer is no. Um, Yeah, one person isn't going to increase the level of play in the United States. The only thing that's going to increase the level of play in the United States is more money, more events and more money. If guys have something to play for, they're going to ramp up their games. I think it's interesting that the top two Americans at the U.S. Open were guys who haven't been playing that long. I mean, guys who are relatively fresh, uh, Shane Van Boning and Louis Ulrich. Um. You know, some of the traditional powers uh, for the U.S., again, your I.D. Morris, your, uh, your Johnny Archer, both guys have won the event before. 
you know, right now, I mean, they've kind of been through the ringer with pool and, you know, they've determined that it's not worth it. Um, they've got to find another way to make a living right now. You can't make a living as a top pool player in the United States, you know, unless you get lucky when the U S open Shane's got 50,000 bucks to play with now, but uh, it's just really, really hard. And right now the industry is kind of in a depressed mode. There just isn't a whole lot of money to go around to increase prize funds. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a really tough time to be a pool player. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that Shane's going to be able to, you know, pick everybody up on his back and, uh, and, and make us more competitive. You know, that's going to be up to the pool industry and the promoters to, uh, you know, give players a reason to be good. I agree with most of what you say. I do think that Shane can help some players pick their game up just the same way that Allison Fisher helped uh, the women pick their game up uh, because it's just a higher target to shoot for. Um, Shane, But those guys have a tour. Those guys have a tour with a lot of money. Yeah, that's that you're you're right. You're well, not a lot of money, but it's it's money. Yeah, more than the guys do. Uh, more than the guys do. Yeah. Uh, Shane's proven with his stick that he's the best player in this hemisphere right now. But you know the the thing that's scary is that Shane's got a lot of improving to do. There are still weaknesses in his game. Uh, he still plays to the level of his opponent. He doesn't go out there and destroy people. He's not showing a killer instinct that he's got to develop. He he plays just good enough to beat you. He had some matches there where he was beating people 11 to 8, 11 to 7. Well, that's fine. He got through, but that kind of result can jump up and bite you because anybody can get up there and, and lay enough racks on you to overcome uh, a 10-8 deficit. Um, so he's still got some work to do. Now, his fundamentals are beautiful. You You watch... The, uh, the amount of set time that he takes. It's like six or eight seconds after he does his warm-up strokes. He freezes in position for six or eight seconds and goes through all the little mental checklists that you're supposed to go through before you pull the trigger. And he does that very well, and when he pulls the trigger, that ball goes right in the heart of the pocket. So if he'll develop a killer instinct and uh, start trying to demolish people rather than just get by them, um, watch out for this kid. Well, and the last question I have about Shane, um, we were talking about Johnny and Rodney and, and the American powerhouses. I wonder if the international players have had enough experience playing the Johnnies and the Rodneys of the U.S. to know that if they bring their A game, they are supposed to win that match, even if Johnny and Rodney bring their A game. But I wonder if there isn't just that level of doubt in the back of their minds that they truly haven't seen the A game of Shane, and they wonder if they can beat it. I don't think that they're really concerned about this guy at this point. You don't think so? You know, I, one tournament doesn't you know make a career. Um, for example, when we go to the, when we go to the Liverpool Championships in a couple of weeks, you know, and that's going to be a different situation. These guys, the Asian players, for example, you know, they're going to be on their home turf. They're going to have the Filipino players are going to have the crowds behind them. Uh, the Asian players, uh, I think, feel comfortable. Um, I don't think those guys are afraid of anybody, and they're certainly not afraid of you know the latest hot guy to come out of the United States. Well, now, do you think this is just uh, Shane going through a year like Corey did a few years ago, where he just happened to catch a gear and win or place well in the majority of the events? Oh no, I think Shane is for real. I'm just saying that I don't think he has the reputation right now. Uh, I mean, just based on a couple of titles, 
to uh, to make those guys quick in their boots. I mean, those guys, you know, out in Asia aren't patsies. <laughs> you know, oh, no. they they know that they're in the hot butter pool right now, and the successful guys, you know, are, are playing extremely well. And I mean, based on the finishes last year at the World Championship, you know, the United States got embarrassed. And uh, just yeah. because the best United States player comes to uh, the World Championship doesn't mean that this guy is, you know, going to wipe the field. Speaking of Shane, one last thing. I do have to give uh, kudos to my partner in crime, Jerry. He picked Shane before the tournament ever got started to win the whole thing. And sure enough, Shane came through. Now, he wasn't really going out on a limb there, but still, I have to give you credit. It was a nice call, Jerry. Yeah, well, everybody gets lucky once in a while. (laughs) Okay, Mason, thanks a lot for being with us this week. Uh, That's it for this show. Uh, We'll see everybody again next week and uh, uh, pick up your latest copy of Billiards Digest. Uh, Subscribe at BilliardsDigest.com if you haven't already done so. Uh, Mike, you have a good week. I'm on my way up to Canada to look at the uh, Canadian Nine Ball Tour event this weekend. And... uh, We'll all touch base again next week. Sounds great, guys. Thanks for having me on.